rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So when I was a kid, I read some book about like you know mysteries and urban legends, and it had a bit about the Bermuda Triangle. And I was actually convinced that I would get lost in the Bermuda Triangle, even though to that point in my life I had never been on a boat. And even at thirty-five, I hate boats, so I don't know why I was so afraid of this. But the Bermuda Triangle was like the fucking scariest thing. Where do the ships go? Um, I don't know. I don't know anything about the Bermuda Triangle. I think I have actively avoided it my entire life. I have been to the Caribbean once, <laughs> and I don't really remember anything about it at all. I don't even really know where the Bermuda Triangle is. Well, they explain it in but, the episode. Like, they literally point it out They do explain it in the episode. And I think I know why you started out this way, because this is a really strange episode. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't really know how to talk about it, and it's it's both really, really good and really, really terrible at the same time. Well, it's a Chris Carter Monster of the Week episode, and in general, he does not have a good track record on Monster of the Week episodes, and the text of this episode is a goddamn mess. I don't understand what happened. I don't know what time period anybody is. None of this makes sense to me. But the direction is fucking impeccable on this episode. It is a really ballsy episode visually. Um, all of these wonners that you have. I mean, this is probably as hip as television could get in 1998. I mean, these are this is more exciting direction than I think was in the movie. And on that level, it's oh. a wonderful episode. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean... Obviously, the point of this episode is the direction yeah. and is the camera work. And, you know, they cheat, of course. Yeah, um, but... One of the things that I found fascinating about it was that they, they shot this with Steadicams, and Steadicams could only hold, I believe it was four minutes of uh, film footage at a time, and they wanted to do this in 11-minute long, um, you know, continuous takes. So they had to sort of, like, cheese it a little bit in, yeah. in a similar fashion to how Alfred Hitchcock had to cheese a rope a little bit because of similar constraints surrounding how much film a camera could hold. Uh, but But I'm always a fan of experimental things like this. I'm always a fan of coming at something from a different angle and doing something a little different. And it also, I think, slots in very nicely with Chris Carter's obsession with with old movies. I mean, if he wrote the postmodern Prometheus and mm -hmm. that was a year ago now at this point, and that was of course his, his kind of his, his look at, or his, his homage to Frankenstein and, and sort of universal monster movies of, of the thirties and forties. And I think triangle is obviously his homage to the wizard of Oz, um, at least the movie, not the book. I, I've never read the book, but it also does feature a lot of the themes of the X-Files in it. Mm. But it still is very strange because I wouldn't say that this is the first time the X-Files has gone metatextual. And I don't even think it's the last time the X-Files goes metatextual. But I don't know if you're really supposed to read the events of Triangle as actually happening, at least the parts on the boat in 1939. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, this is a follow-up to, of all things, the field where I died. I mean, they mention 
Nazis at one point, right? Like this, this to me could be a vision of a past life version of Mulder in which they were all on this ship. I mean, that, that to me seems to be the point of why all these people are recast in these roles. Uh, other than it's just kind of fun stunt casting, but, uh, this is an episode where you have a very different time and place and yet people doing their same roles and, I like that about it. It, it, it. It's the characters are very archetypal in this episode, especially in Mulder's dream sequences. Yeah, well, I think that what is what is key to understanding the episode is is to sort of examine the the casting of actors who play characters in the TV show The X Files as actors in Mulder's whatever this is dream hallucination vision pick vision. Yeah, I mean. This is a Wizard of Oz riff, obviously, and part of what makes the Wizard of Oz so visually arresting, aside from the the switch from black and white to color, is the fact that the Scarecrow, the Lion, et cetera, et cetera, are played by the the same actors who play her her family, uh, or Dorothy's family. And that is a direct comparison. That is a direct link between this episode and the Wizard of Oz. I don't know how much further you can take the... Um, the comparisons than that. I mean, I think yeah. that that in con- in contrasting it with something like the postmodern Prometheus, which I think had a lot more to say than this episode. I don't necessarily think that this episode is trying to say much of anything in a similar fashion to how I don't think the Wizard of Oz is trying to say much of anything. Um, but I also think that it does contextualize how we how we think Mulder thinks about everything that goes on in his life by, by using the same people in his dream as in real life, you know, you know, you say they, they sort of play the same role and they do, but it also indicates exactly how much Mulder thinks about this kind of thing. Yeah. How close these people are to his brain that when he, again, if this is a hallucination, if this is a dying dream that he has while he's drowning in in, in the ocean, uh, it does make, it's interesting, yeah, that these are the people who, like even Kirsch is in this and he's a good guy in this episode. Like I think that of anything is the most fascinating one because yes, the cigarette smoking man is going to be the villain. Yes. Skinner is going to be somebody who's pretending to play the game, but was really on their side. Yes. Scully is going to be, you know, spunk, the spunky spy who's trying to figure everything out. I mean, that all makes sense. But Kirsch being somebody who does the right thing. I don't know if that's intending to be any foreshadowing or what, but it was notable to me. I mean, I think that in some respects it might just be due to the fact that Kirsch is a very new character yeah. and Chris Carter wasn't really sure what they were going to do with him yet. And you can't cast you know, him I, as I a don't... Nazi either. It's fair enough. Yeah, you can't cast Kirsch as a Nazi for, for obvious reasons. But I I think that's interesting because part of what makes Triangle so weird is that, you know, this is only the third episode of, of, of the season and, and already the show seems kind of bored with itself like (laughs) dreamland is also a really weird episode which we will talk about in a few minutes but you know and 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 next week is is extraordinarily weird week as well because dreamland is a two-parter and i had forgotten about this but so one of the things in my research for because i needed to some help with triangle 
is uh, I, I, I had forgotten this, but um, there was a lot of uproar on the Internet. Uh, back in 1998 when these string of episodes aired because people felt like the X-Files had become a comedy. And, you know, Drive isn't funny, um, but Triangle is certainly funny. Dreamland is certainly funny. Uh, The next two episodes next week are intended to be funny as well. And the X-Files, I don't know, like how do you think the X-Files is handling itself at this point in its run? Because... I mean, Triangle is a very, very inventive episode. It is very demanding, both both on a production and an acting and a writing yeah. and a directing level. And it certainly is the show at the peak of its powers, but it also feels like the show doesn't really know where it wants to go anymore. Well, it's... I have to think about the fact that it just had a goddamn blockbuster movie over the summer and the fact that it has gone to these really epic lengths and it's gonna want to top itself every time and in a way it's kind of very canny to make it more of a comedy because we can't ratchet up the drama effectively on a small screen week after week we can't top a spaceship coming out of the antarctic you know um the beginning was very good at at sustaining that momentum i would say and of course we are going to see more mythology episodes but it seems almost like what's the easiest way that we can do that we can still feel vital and maybe it's just taking a completely different tack we're in a different location we're in LA now things are a lot less bleak here you know let's laugh and have fun for a little bit i mean i think Mulder and Scully deserve a little fun right now yeah because on a, on a fundamental level i'll ask you this question like you had never seen this episode before and you know sitting down to the very early episodes of the first season of the X-Files. And then you have seen the evolution of the show. Yeah. But this is obviously extremely different from, from what I think you even expected this show to be. Well, this is something that I have said several times and will continue to say and is more and more ludicrous the longer I watch the X-Files, but I still don't know what the fuck the show is. I don't, like, beyond Scully and Mulder investigate crimes with aliens and urban legends, I don't know, I don't know what the show is. I can't talk about the tone of it. I can't talk about the themes and the meaning of it for the most part because it really does just swerve. And, I mean, this is, like, I mean this as 100% a massive compliment, but this is a really fucking infuriating show. I love how infuriating it is, but... I don't know what the show is. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think, I mean, I know what the show yeah. is because I've seen it before. And I, and, and I obviously but... have a better idea of what the show is at this point. But it is, it's funny how broad the tone of the show can be. You can't have, uh, I, 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 again advantages of episodic television but the show has really figured out that its core elements is not necessarily tone or plot or anything like that but this relationship between Mulder and Scully maybe and weird stuff and that can go in any direction they want and they've mined the depths of horror and they are going to mine the depths of horror again I assume but they're realizing they can get a lot of mileage out of mining comedy 
And yeah, I mean, part of part of I think what what I, I just and I wanted to, to contextualize this conversation that way, because I do think it's important to, to step back every once in a while and just objectively take a look at an episode like Triangle and just say, this is very strange. Yeah, this this is this is weird. Like television shows didn't work like this. Television yeah. shows still don't work like this. I mean, you know, you can say anything you want about episodic television, but the, the, you know, the X-Files at its core is a procedural. And I, you know, certainly I think that that some television uh, uh, series are more inventive than others. I mean, I think that Buffy has a kind of similar reputation, yeah. for example, um, that the X-Files does. And the X-Files and Buffy were very formally experimental in similar ways. But but it is important to just kind of step back every once in a while and, 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 and reiterate that point that this is a weird show. And... You didn't know what you were going to get from week to week. And I remember watching this episode and kind of hating it at the time because it wasn't what I expected from the X-Files. And and I don't know what I expected from the X-Files. I mean, I had other things going on in my life. I was a freshman in college. But uh, it, it is the case that this is just very strange. And I think that it really speaks to Chris Carter. I mean, he gets a bad rap sometimes because, charitably speaking, he has gone off the rails a little bit. Uh, but, but when you watch an episode like this without talking about it in terms of the X-Files as a television show, this is really, really entertaining. This is really well done. There is an energy to it. I mean, they've basically recreated a sort of madcap screwball comedy and the, the direction is, is fantastic. I mean, I could sit and watch the, the second scene um, where Scully is desperately <laughs> trying to find out the location of Mulder, like on a loop. Oh it's my god! So well done, and and I mean, you know, Jillian Anderson said she had a lot of fun doing it, even though it was a lot of work to, yeah. to make this episode. But you just have to sit back and you just have to look at it sometimes and say, I don't know why they were doing this. I don't know what they even thought they were doing or where any of this came from. Yeah, but. But it's amazing. It's amazing work. It really is. Like there's something like this is their attempt at being Tarantino almost to a way. Like I said, this is about as hip as 90s direction got on television. And I'm not quite sure why this particular episode was the one they decided to do this with. But like, again, this is we talked about the X-Files being confident. This is almost crossing the line into cocky, but... When you get something like this, I can't blame it. It's basically it, – this is Chris Carter and his team showing off, and it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I, and I, I will – I mean I think The X-Files should be a fun show at a lot of times because of the themes of what it's doing. Like it can give us entertaining adventures and weird shit. And we've kind of done all of the normal monsters by now, and it's season six, so – Let's get the really weird ass monsters now. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, I think there's there's a couple things there. I think number one, just to kind of answer your question of why this episode, um, it was intended to be this episode because, yeah. um, as I understand it, Chris Carter, uh, you know, had the idea to to do this sort of Hitchcockian rope style directing, and felt like a ship was a good place to do it because they were going to have to do a little bit of cheating mm. around the edges to to make you think that they were cutting, and so a ship in tight corners, you know, a lot of long. You, you'll notice they're they, you know, they're using a lot of like going around corners and stuff that. That's the moment when they kind of like cheated a little bit. Yeah. Black. There's. It, it's a very dark episode in some places. Um, 
and they're very sort of like dialing into that. And then also, if you think about the the scene, um, the second scene that I mentioned earlier, where Scully is running around the FBI headquarters, so much of that is done with corners and hallways and yeah. elevators. And and so that's kind of, I think, why they wanted to do it that way, because it just the directing style lends itself to that sort of environment. Makes sense. Yeah. And and then the other part of it, too, I think, is that just to kind of like step back and talk about the X-Files, doing a kind of riff on the Wizard of Oz with Nazis, I mean, is so interesting because it doesn't really have anything to do with a particular um, time and place that this episode was made in. I I don't well, know why it's Nazis. I almost think it's kind of incidental, but it shows that Mulder has integrated all of these people into his life so much that they are appearing in his in his fantasies. I mean, number one, this is a weird payoff to uh, drive with all the "Are you a Jew?" kind of talk. It's weird. It's funny almost to see Nazis, actual Nazis, in the next episode. Um, and there is a bit of, I mean, this is the era that Titanic came out. This is the era that swing music was really popular. So I think there was, in the culture, a bit, people thought this stuff was cool. Like I said, this is 1998 cool, as, as cool as they can get this episode. Yeah, no, I think that's certainly true. Big band music was big and swing music and all that kind of stuff. And certainly yeah. I think that, um, you know, Mark Snow, who does the music for the X-Files, like he said, he, he had a lot of fun making the music for this episode. And you can tell, I mean, I, th- I think that's kind of what the point of this episode is. It's not not really to highlight the characters. It's not to give any sort yeah. of character development. It's not to do any of that. It's just we're going to have fun with this. And it's very, very fun. Yeah, we've had five seasons of character development. We can put it back to kick back and do something just panache for a little bit if we want. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But at the same time, I think that that um, this episode indicates something that has been developing really since the movie. Um, and what I'm talking about is the, the nascent uh, Scully and Mulder shipping. I know you're not a fan of it, but it's happening a lot. It's happened, I think, in every episode this season so far, and it happened in the movie. Um, you know, they kiss in this episode, although it's not actually Scully, of course, yeah. to say that. Uh, but also um, that Mulder says that he loves Scully in this episode. And if you take this as his fantasy, if you take this as his idealized wish fulfillment or his whatever, um, there is a reason why Scully is in this. There is a reason why this is happening um, in his dream. Mulder feels a certain way for Scully that is becoming increasingly obvious. And I guess my question is, how are you feeling about that? How do you fucking think I'm feeling about that? Um, it's No, I, I guess I didn't realize that they leaned into it. Um, because I know that, oh, the will they or won't they was such a big part of the show and, or at least of, well, or I at least of be, the fandom. I want to be clear. Well, I want to be clear. I, I'm not saying that this necessarily goes anywhere. Okay. I'm just, I'm just highlighting that. I'm not saying it doesn't either, but I'm just saying that in terms of what we are seeing on screen in each week this so far, they seem to be very interested in ratcheting this up 
and this episode is is really ratcheting it up because this is the first time that they kiss and and they are playing around with it of course like this again second it's not time they kiss Mulder and scully kissing second time they kiss because postmodern prometheus oh well that's true yeah but that also but wasn't real again it's um, a, a and they but see, to me, this comes off as really coy fan service then. We're going to have David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson kiss or almost kiss or whatever, but it's not actually going to be Mulder and Scully kissing. Ha ha. Because they know – I mean there is a degree to which he writes this and he knows that in homes all across the country, people are going to be <gasps> – when they see that. And I, 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 I mean that's Chris Carter having fun. Right, like, like I, I, I mean, this entire episode is fan servicey, given that we see these actors in very different. You know, seeing uh, the cigarette smoking man trying to speak German is just hilarious from from that point of view, and I think that's where a lot of that is coming from this season. A lot of the shipping because they know there is a huge shipping contingent, and we're going to tease them a lot because it's really funny and because. That's what the fans like. I mean, that's to me seems to be where they're coming from a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I have made this point before, but I will say it again because it's relevant to this episode. But the X-Files was never shy about fucking around with its fans. And and I think that that is really what is going on here, um, because what does the fantasy Scully do after Mulder kisses her? <laughs> she she punches him. Yeah, she doesn't even just slap him; she fucking punches him. <laughs> yeah, she decks him, and and that to me is is the audience. That to me is the X Files in dialogue with its audience, right? I mean, because famously, the X Files was one of the first television shows to have a very very active yeah. um, online fan community that the producers were aware of and th- this is certainly the case that i think they're they're in dialogue with the audience they're saying okay okay you there's a vocal contingent of you that want Mulder and scully to get together here's what we think of that idea yeah like there's so so i at what i didn't notice who had written the episode so a little bit in um i Chris Carter. Well, I know that now, but I was uh, so I was looking up uh, you know, who you know, X Files Triangle, and in the search suggestions it goes X Files Triangle Kiss, and I thought, oh fuck, they're gonna actually kiss in this episode, and you know, then she has the kiss to Skinner, which I'm like, oh, that's what that, was. and that was hilarious too, but um, like, it, it, oh yeah, I guess it's the kind of thing where. Obviously, memes and gifs weren't a thing back then, but they are now, and people have made a lot of that. And this was to tease whatever fans did in 1998. That was the equivalent of gifs and, you know, meme images. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really what's going on here is that the, the X-Files is not is not ashamed of of playing around with fan expectations and, and about doing what it wants to do. I mean, this is... This is not a show that panders to its fans. And certainly I think that an argument can be made for later on they're pandering to the fans and, and that may be why the X Files went a little bit downhill mm. later. But you know, this 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 is a very this is a demanding show. You know, and I think you see that in all kinds of aspects. You see it in the ways in which they didn't want Mulder and Scully to get together and they were actively fighting against that. You see the ways in which they are going out of their way to make this a very, very different show from week to week from from not I mean, even in the sense of slotting in episodes in a sequence where, as I said earlier, 
there was a lot of, of fan uproar at the time because they felt like this show was becoming a comedy because yeah. there were like three or four comedy episodes in a row. They're not afraid to do this stuff because they, they, they have the luxury of being a big hit. And, mm. you know, again, like we're talking a lot about The X-Files as a television show with this episode because I don't know that there's a lot of substance to Triangle, but it's just amazing to to watch this episode knowing all of this stuff because it's it's i don't know i think it's hard for people to to remember or understand now a how weird this stuff was yeah and b how big a hit the x-files was yeah and i mean this is a an episode that can stand alone if you've just heard about this x-files thing and are just tuning in because why not and you've never really watched it triangle might be a really good episode I think even Dreamland is an episode that a cash that somebody who doesn't know anything about the show can follow pretty easily. No, I would agree with that. I mean, I th- I think that 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 the X Files can definitely um, stand on its own, which is part of the reason why it's considered a standalone television series. Yeah, no, but you know, some episodes are better at being unconnected from everything. Some episodes are. A little more difficult, like the episode Max and Tempest Fugit. I think you kind of need to know a little bit of the deep cuts for that to have the resonance. Um, I'm not yeah, saying, yeah, yeah, you know, a, sure. and I, I, again, this is a broad toned show. It can be both things. It can be full of very deep references and lore for the fans who've been watching it since day one. And it could be just a fun romp for people who just want to watch something on whatever night and Okay, the X Files. Everybody else is watching this. Oh, what a fun episode! Well, yeah, because I think I think a, a small example of that in this episode is is how they use the lone gunman. You know, like if you just watch this episode without knowing anything about the X Files, yeah. you're not really going to get a lot of the character resonance of the, the the lone gunman appearing in this episode. And what is so nice to me about seeing them in this episode is that. It indicates that a they really trust Scully at this point, and that Scully yeah. really trusts them. And and for a show that relies so much on trust, I mean, that's one of the taglines of the show. Yeah, and this search for the truth, and and this idea of trusting people, and you know, who do you trust, who do you not trust? Characters developing over time in a trusting relationship yeah. is really interesting because Scully absent Mulder has to. Who does she rely on? She relies on the lone gunman, and she relies on Skinner, and both of them come through for her. Yeah. And again, if you're just watching as a casual fan, they come off as just some of Mulder and Scully's weird friends. Her, their old boss who's gruff but ultimately nice. Kirsch is their new asshole boss. You know, you you can kind of pick up the archetypes of the characters pretty well. Uh, I guess on Kirsch Watch, we have finally the cigarette-smoking man in his office and... I like how Kirsch kind of doesn't give a shit about what's going on. Like, he, he slowly comes in, she's like, oh, Kirsch, I have a question. Oh, never mind. He's like, all right, good, whatever. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 and he will be part of, part of Dreamland, of course, but I still can't, I don't know if he's going to do anything or not. I really don't. I don't think he's going to be a Skinner. I don't think he's ultimately going to help them, but I don't know what, and... I also, I mean, I find it a little funny seeing the cigarette man there because I don't picture Kirsch being the kind of person who would do conspiracy shit. Like, that's 
maybe he does the accounting for the conspiracy and, you know, tells them, you can't do that. That's too expensive. What are you talking about? Faking a full-scale invention? That is not a good use of department resources. Like, that's what I think Kirsch's role could be, and they would not want him around. Like, I think it's funny to have CSM there, but I don't know. it, It is a suggestion that he has certain ties, or at least is... I mean, Skinner obviously grew to resent and ultimately rebel against the Cigarette Man's uh, control. Kirsch doesn't seem like he's... Kirsch knows where his bread is buttered, maybe. And while he may never be deep in the conspiracy, he certainly knows that his job right now is to try his hardest to discredit Mulder and Scully and get them to quit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know just have to wait and see on Kirsch. I mean, he he is, as I said last week, he sticks around for a while, so. Yeah. I mean, he's been in every episode this season so far. That is true. That is true. Yeah. That doesn't hold for everything, of course. Of course. But they are. He's not like like a new series regular or anything, but yeah. No, no, no. But I mean, he'll obviously appear in Dreamland again, and, you know, maybe if it's a couple episodes before we see him again, that's okay, but... They are putting him in at least the first five episodes to remind us this guy is very much a presence in the show, in these people's lives. This is the new world order. They're not under Skinner anymore. They get help from Skinner. That's going outside protocol, and Skinner may not be able to do that that easily. Kirsch is the new boss. All right. Well, I think that's it for Triangle. We're going to move on to Dreamland. But before we do that, I do want to take an opportunity to remind all of you listening to this that this podcast is supported by you. Yes, you, the listener. If you would like to give us a little bit of support, you can go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. So I think Dreamland is fun, but I also have a serious problem with it, which is that I think it is a little bit more mean-spirited than I generally like the X-Files to be. Okay. um, I think I can see where you're going with that, but can you give me anything more specific? Yeah, I mean, this is co-written by Vince Gilligan, Frank Spotnitz, and John Sheeban. And, Mm. you know, we have opinions about Vince Gilligan. We have opinions about John Sheeban. We have opinions about Frank Spotnitz. But, and they all have their, like, interesting peccadilloes as, as writers. One of Vince Gilligan's is sort of examining the relationship between Mulder and Scully. As we've Mm. seen in Bad Blood, we've seen in other episodes, right? And... Dreamland is a rare non-mythology two-parter, arguably. Mm. I mean, you could argue it has something to do with the mythology. but It's a loose connection, yeah. It's a loose connection, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the mythology. And it's also interested in examining the relationship between Mulder and Scully, but there's something about that part of it which feels both unnecessary and mean-spirited to me because... I don't like seeing Scully get beaten up by someone she thinks is Mulder. And I'm not saying beaten up physically. No, no. You know, but... He's a dick. It's just... Yeah, he's a dick to her, and I don't like that. Yeah, this is a weird companion follow-up to Small Potatoes in his way in which the person... In that, of course, the person pretending to be Mulder had some sinister designs on Scully, but was still treating her very kindly and romantically and in the pre it, 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 he he was certainly working on the seduction angle and trying to make her happy uh and the michael mckean version of Mulder is just a womanizing asshole yeah 
Um, I I guess the the difficulties with this episode for me is I can't tell what the Michael McKean character's motivations are because yes to come uh, because. Mulder is very obvious, right? Like, he's in this situation. He has an opportunity to see a lot of stuff that he normally wouldn't to figure he, – he has suddenly access to all of the stuff he was trying to get access to. He's trying to keep his stop – stop imploding the life that he suddenly found himself in because he doesn't want his cover blown. And he's also trying to figure out the mystery that he's found himself in. He makes perfect sense. I can't quite tell what Michael McKean is doing because partially, yes, he is trying to get Mulder arrested and out of the way because he rec- – and I think he recognizes that, yes, to a degree – He's in a good situation. He's in a good situation to find out who's leaking. He's going to find out. He's he's going to stop attention onto his base. All of that. Okay. But then when he's doing stuff like, like, why is he so insistent on being by the book to Kirsch? And why is he being such an open asshole and womanizer? And on some levels, I wonder if he is, this is a small potatoes kind of thing where he recognizes that, I'm trapped in the body of somebody who's a lot more handsome than I am, and I am not I, – I'm suddenly single. I'm not with my wife that I don't love anymore. I'm having a party, and this job, which is, as far as we know, still checking out on manure sales, is a sinecure compared to what he's had, right? Like, if you have the choice between, you know – your job is cleaning up and killing witnesses and stuff, and you have the opportunity to be better looking and get paid pretty decently to just go and get papers signed. I mean, this to him looks like a vacation. Maybe he's just playing and doing what he can to keep that. But I don't know, because he is making no effort to blend in. Yeah, yeah. I, I There's a lot to unpack there, but I think that you're right. Like, part of what also does not work with this episode is... That I don't like you said. I we don't know what this Michael McKean's character is. This uh, Morris Fletcher guy. You know, I don't know who he is. I don't know what his motivations are. I don't know why he's doing anything he's doing. Yeah. Aside from the like basest interpretation of why he's doing what he's doing. You know, like well, people like to have sex and not work. Uh, uh, all right. Like and and it seems like a waste of an actor like Michael McKean because. I think he's do- like, frankly speaking, I don't think this episode is very well written. And part of what makes it not very well written, and part of what also makes that very shocking, because Vince Gilligan helped write yeah. this episode, is that in as much as anybody is a monster of the week in this episode, Michael McKean is the monster of the week. And Vince Gilligan's extraordinary strength as a writer yeah. on this show has always been his interest in really getting at what makes that week's monster of the week work what makes them tick why are they doing what they're doing who are they fundamentally as people you see that with pusher you see that with the guy from small potatoes you know all of these characters you see that in bad blood i don't know what michael mckean's motivations are i don't know why he's doing anything and yes maybe we'll find out in the two-parter which again is extremely unnecessary which is another criticism of this episode because i don't know why this had to be a two-parter it's there's a there's a there's kind of a a a laziness born out Mm. of shortcutting in a lot of this episode that really bothers me because some of it is very well done you know i think that 
whatever you think of the ways in which Michael McKean's Mulder is written, um, Jillian Anderson is playing that very well. I think Kirsch is playing his his bewilderment at this sudden turn of events very well. Yeah. Um, I, I like the scenes uh, at Area 51 quite a bit, especially the one where you have the, the elderly Navajo woman who's, oh, yeah. um, who, who's body swaps with the, with the Air Force guy. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff in this episode, and a lot of it is really well done. But, you know, there's also this really, really hoary stuff about... Oh well, he's henpecked by his, you know, wife and blah blah blah. There's just a a mean spirited again about this episode at its core, which is very, very sort of like yeah. lazily put together with these like half assed assumptions people make about heterosexuality or something. <laughs> and I'm not really here for that. Like I don't I'm not interested in that, and I think it's, like, well, almost offensive in a way. Well, I guess it's like this. If this episode is going to be a comedy episode, and, I mean, they literally do the mirror gag, and it's hilarious, as it always is, and, like, there are a lot of really funny scenes. If this is going to be a comedy episode, with that's really cool, except I don't find the henpecked husband to be funny. I, 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 maybe that's simply it. Like, it just doesn't register as funny, and so it just comes off as a waste of time that could have been better spent, you know, characterizing him. Or at least have, I mean, maybe this was one of the episodes where they all just wrote a chunk of it, and so you have somebody writing you know, Mulder at the house, and somebody writing Michael McKean in the FBI office, and somebody writing the other, like, it almost seems very siloed because... As I said, you could have the sense in that Morris is feeling free and enjoying himself for the first time in a long time because he has a fucked up marriage and two terrible kids. And But I don't buy that from his end. I buy very much the Mulder in Morris's body is trying to figure this out and everybody thinks that's weird, but we still understand his motivations because, again, we've had... Six years of of Mulder motivations to go over. Yeah, no, I think that's really right. I mean, I I don't really have issues with the way Mulder acts in this. Episode, no, he is. Then again, we we like you said, we have five five six seasons of of giving Mulder the the benefit of the doubt. We understand, um, you know, what he would be doing and why he would be doing it, mm-hmm. even if this episode isn't particularly good at telling us why he would be doing what he's doing. But we don't have that context for for the Morris Fletcher character. We don't know who this guy is, and and what is is more egregious about it is that you know like the his wife, for example, is is henpecking him and she's yelling him and you know yelling at him and all this kind of stuff. And this is this is kind of a weird comparison, but this is very similar to how a lot of people viewed Skylar White from Breaking Bad. Yes, and. You know, I have always found that the the criticisms of Skylar Way to be extremely ill placed because it's just coming from a place of misogyny. You know, and 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 this is kind of an even grosser example of that, where she's she's not a character; she's a cliche. She's a comedy bit. She's a she's a she's a character in a comedy sketch, and not a very good one at that. I mean, this is the kind of character that they put on the air at twelve forty five in the morning on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And, and then it's like, you know, when when she decides that the reason why her husband has been so distant and weird all the time is because he has erectile dysfunction. It's just like, where is this even coming from? Like, uh, I, yeah. 
I mean, can't you imagine a version of this character who is taken very seriously, who was married to this guy who had a very good government job and they had two kids and then he began to work more and more and the horrible work that he's doing is just eating him from the inside and he's becoming more and more distant and she doesn't know what the fuck has happened. Her husband won't reach out to her. Her kids won't talk. Like, I could see this character played as somebody of very, very real loneliness and desperation and sadness and because that is who this character is. She is not in a good place in her life. She is not having the life that she had thought that she would 20 years ago. And yet they just play her as a shrew. Yeah, yeah, because – and that's really – I mean you could certainly do that. And I think that would be maybe more interesting than what we get in this episode. But then that would really even more muddy the waters of what the point of this episode is. And, like, this is weird, too, because I don't necessarily think that this needed to be a two-parter, as I said earlier, but because I fundamentally don't care. Like, they spend a lot of time on these, quote-unquote, jokes or, quote-unquote, comedy bits that that aren't funny and cut all that shit out and, like, play this straight because otherwise – I don't know what you're doing here. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the behind the scenes stuff in this episode is that they wanted Gary Shandling to play okay. Wes Fletcher. Okay. Fine. But, but, and I can maybe see that working a little better. I mean, Michael McKean is a, is a great actor. Um, you know, and, and if anyone listening to this hasn't seen him in, in better call Saul, like go out and watch that because it's a fucking fantastic show. Um, and it's criminal that, that more people aren't watching it because it's better than breaking bad. But, I, this isn't the kind of role that he's good at playing, yeah. and I can certainly see Gary Shandling doing a much better job of playing this guy because maybe that's what happened here. You know, maybe they wrote this character with Gary Shandling in mind, mm. and we're expecting Gary Shandling to be able to do a lot of the heavy lifting or or you know make the the lines that they're writing for the character funnier or better or make him understand it more because Gary Shandling as an actor did have that quality that yeah. sort of like you know I can I can make this guy sympathetic even though he's kind of an asshole but I don't think Michael McKean has that and that's really the problem at the core of this episode is that he can't make Mike he can't make his character sympathetic even though he's an asshole yeah I mean, the, the interesting thing that I, uh, so in my mind, I'm comparing this a lot to, there was a Buffy episode where, uh, Buffy and the character Faith, uh, played by Eliza Dushku, uh, switch places like this. And in that episode, Sarah Michelle Geller is playing Faith in Buffy's body. Eliza Dushku is playing, uh, Buffy in Faith's body. And the episode is based very much around the special effect of them playing each other. Sarah Michelle Keller does a much better job of it than Eliza does, but that's a different story. Um, I really don't like the way this episode switches. I wanted to see Michael McKean playing David Duchovny. I wanted to see David Duchovny playing Michael McKean, and they, by p- casting it the way they do, we we miss out on that. I feel like that effect, that gimmick, would have been enough to save this episode. Maybe, but then basically you're watching Mulder be an asshole, and yeah, but I don't know if I don't know if David Duchovny has that in him to pull that off either. Frankly, maybe that's the that's a fair moment. And may- I mean, I think Michael McKean or Gary Shandling or whoever 
probably would have done a better job playing Mulder than Mulder would playing a sympathetic asshole. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't think he, I don't think David Duchovny has it in him as an actor to, to do that. I don't know, but um, wasn't but uh, maybe that Californication about him being an asshole? I don't know. I've never seen it. That was, I, I, nobody um, has, but that was my understanding of what the show is. <laughs> Well, Mulder does watch porn in this episode, so that's kind of a little bit of crossover, I guess. Yeah, and 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 like that really fundamentally, I think is 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 highlighting the problem with the episode is that at the end of the day, it is just an escalating series of like bad improv sketches, and I don't want to watch that. Like, it's not interesting. I mean, I like interesting failures, but this isn't even interesting as a failure. It's just not very good. Yeah, like listen. I can get behind a series of sketches. Like I said, I really like the mirror gag scene. It's cheap. It's silly. But it's funny. And, you know, all right. You know, no one is above a cheap laugh from time to time. Okay. Um, I can even be okay with one scene of, you know, she wake, she comes down in the morning to see that he's been watching porn all night. And she's upset. And then his kids come up and they're terrible. And this is having this, you know, huge fight. I could see one scene of that. But two scenes of that. And the fact that I have a whole nother episode of that coming up. Like, as you say, why is this a yeah. two-parter? This is not a big enough story to be a two-parter. At least not yet. And also, like, the fact that, that um, to, to your point, like, Scully doesn't, I mean, she doesn't really pick up on, I mean, she picks up on the fact that something is up with Mulder, but she doesn't yeah. really get it. And then, like, I don't know, there's just... I feel like there there are ways that Mulder could explain to Scully that I'm really me and that she would get. Right. <laughs> and it's like I'm I'm struggling to articulate my point, but I will try because okay. I am a podcaster. But we're all rooting for you. <laughs> for me fundamentally what it comes down to I think is that I don't like it when the X-Files uses Scully as a punching bag. Mm. And I find that this episode time and time again goes into the well of, of writing the least charitable interpretation of the Scully character. And this is the, this is the version of Scully that everyone makes fun of the version that is put upon by Mulder, the version that is a little sad, the version that, um, is, is, is stupid, frankly, that, that can't see the reality of the situation. You know, she's, she's not really getting that. And, and there's a way to write that and make that, um, make that sympathetic or make that understandable or make you question how you feel about that sort of thing. I mean, I think bad blood did that brilliantly, Mm. but this episode doesn't do that. And, and, and I don't know why. I mean, aside from the fact that three people wrote it, which is never really a good idea, well, one of the funny points about this is for somebody who didn't really like all of the ship teasing that's going on, this episode flies in the face of all of that, right? Like, uh, Mulder and Scully are past that point. Mulder and Scully have ha- 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 passed the movie, are at a point where they do recognize that they have an intimacy. They are on a much more even level. Yes, there have been times in the relationship they were not on an even level, and... The show has addressed this. The show has come to terms with that. And yes, they can relapse, but it seems like too much of a relapse, you know? In We have one episode in which Scully is calling in every favor she can figure out and going crazy trying to 
find Mulder to one in which she totally ignores him. Well, she totally ignores his pleas. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, it is weird. It is weird. And, and, and yeah, I mean, of course it's not Mulder and it doesn't look like Mulder, but, but that as well, I think might be, might be the misfire. Like maybe it would have worked better if, if Michael McKean played Mulder because, maybe we would have seen that better from scully's perspective yeah you know like mike yeah i don't know i don't know i mean it, it, it's a little strange um well let's talk about kirsch then because you know you 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 mentioned him a little bit earlier and i actually think the curse scenes are, are, are the funniest part of the episode and yeah. they work because the actor playing kirsch is not trying to be funny like, yeah. he's bewildered by this turn of events. He is like, why is Mulder suddenly on board with all of this? Why is he a company man all of a sudden? He doesn't really say a whole lot, but the way that the actor uh, uh, plays those scenes is, is is fantastic. He has been trying for four episodes to break Mulder. As far as he knows, that's happened, and it's really freaky that that's happened. Like, he's a little too suspicious of, but on the other hand... And this is exactly what Kirsch has wanted. Kirsch has wanted a very docile Mulder who understands and is working with him and is a company man. And suddenly he has that. And what the fuck do I, do I question this? Should I question this? Should I just assume that things have gone wrong? Like, I, 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 I really like the implied what the fuck from his perspective that he can't really show them. Yeah, and I think the other part of it that, that about it is hilarious to me too is the subtext that that Kirsch is kind of thinking like, well, why did everyone make such a big deal about yeah. how much of a pain in the ass Mulder is? I mean, I've been I've been a supervisor for two months, and look, I fixed it. You, you just know? needed <laughs> the right guy on this. Guy. Skinner doesn't know what he's doing. You just need somebody a little tough. You run a couple numbers and tell them no, and eventually they stand in line. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's nice. I don't know. I mean, Kirsch is not one of my favorite characters, but I I think he is developing into a very different character. And I think the character <laughs> that he is developing into is he's like a mid-level functionary at the yeah. FBI who just wants to get his pension. Yeah, he's not looking, like essentially. Yeah, he's somebody who is smart enough to get recruited. He's he's the kind of guy who's better at administration than field work. I will assume. I I. I like, you certainly get the sense that Skinner was a good field agent, particularly with the way that his mission in the B episode and stuff like that. He was a good field agent who did his dues and played the game and got uh, got into an administrative position and got promoted and got hired up, higher up. Curse uh, has always been on that uh, management track, let's say. All right, well, I think we'll leave it there. The open question at the end of the episode will have to wait until next week to be answered. We will tell you what we're talking about in just a minute. But if you have any thoughts on Triangle or Dreamland, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our username is tuninginshow on all those social media platforms. As I said earlier, this podcast is listener supported. If you would like to give us a little bit of support each and every month, you can go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. It also supports our other podcast, Trek About. We are in the fifth season of Star Trek Voyager right now, so go over to trekaboutshow.com and check that out. Finally, leave us an Apple Podcast review for tuning in. It is the best way for new fans to find us. Okay, next week we're going to be talking about Dreamland 2. Not much of a surprise there. Mm. And 
How the Ghosts Stole Christmas. Oh. Okay. This is Mac. Why do you... 